Greetings, Hokie fans. Welcome to another edition here of Teradome Talk. I'm Jonathan Hagee. Excited to be back with you here with Josh Hollifield and Austin Eads. Josh, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I've managed to avoid COVID so far, so that's a positive. And, you know, that's more than a lot of our players have been able to do. But otherwise, doing pretty good. I mean, how can you not be good when we're undefeated? Absolutely. Austin, how are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I think I'm a little more skeptical about the undefeated than Hollifield is, but I'm not doing too bad, you know. Any win is a good win. I'm just I'm still processing some things from Saturday, so we're we're making it making it along. I think I'm in a bad mood because my Lakers lost last night. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that, and I'm hoping that our Braves can start us off right tomorrow with game one against the Marlins. Uh looking back to Saturday, Virginia Tech does go into Durham and get a 38-31 win against Duke. Maybe not the margin of victory that we expected and not the dominant performance we were looking for, but nonetheless, still some positives to take away from Durham. Also, I'll start with you. You look at Khalil Herbert, another banner day, 20 carries, 208 yards, two touchdowns, not to mention the big plays, kick return on special teams. What is your take on Herbert's start to the season? And, you know, speak more to the running game and the way that's been able to carry us thus far. Well, you know, I think there are two primary factors that really go into all the success that Herbert has had this year. Uh, yeah, he's been a huge surprise for everybody, I think, in Hokie Nation. Anybody that says they expected this is probably not telling the truth. But uh, the offensive line would be my primary factor, like the initial start to this. These guys have played incredible as a unit, man. To go back-to-back games with 300-plus rushing yards, to be averaging close to eight, nine yards a carry as a team right now, it's just outrageous to think about. I mean, honest to God, like I'm not – a really athletic dude, I'm a, a fast twitch muscle guy. Like I, I am an offensive lineman. I think I could have gained about five, ten yards on some of these holes that these guys have been producing against D1 athletes. And I think it really starts with uh, the center in the middle, man. Brock Hoffman, I think, has taken this offensive line, who was very talented and very big and very skilled last year, and elevated their tenacity, their work ethic, and their general workmanship together, their their chemistry as a unit. Because if you have five guys that go about 6'3 plus, 320 plus, moving in unison and doing things that to move other defensive linemen and things like that around, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. And Herbert, man, his first step is out of this world. His patience, his vision, and then like, three steps and he's in to win. And he's tough to get a hold of. He's, he's very shifty. I'm very excited with everything that he's been able to do so far. This kid, and I'll come out and say it, he might be the best running back we've seen in a Hokie uniform since a guy they called Little Sweetness that wore 34 not so long ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Herbert, is just, he just seems like the guy that when Virginia Tech needs something, not just on offense, but as a team. You look at the kick return uh, when Duke kind of cut the game back close there in the third quarter. The kick return that he was able to get, unfortunately, stepped out of bounds. Uh, you know, just game-changing play after game-changing play. I mean, they call him Juice for a reason. This kid's got the juice. Yeah, that's definitely apropos nickname there. Josh, uh, you know, looking at it statistically, Virginia Tech outgained Duke, although not by the margin that, you know, you would hope, only a plus 77 margin there, did dominate the time of possession, dominate first downs, um, you know, outrushed Duke to 324 to 139. But if you're going to pinpoint one issue in the game – it's probably Burmeister's stats, you know, 9 of 25 for 163 yards. The yardage is not really the problem, but the efficiency is. What did you see in the passing game from Burmeister and the receiving core that has to be fixed going into Saturday in Chapel Hill? I'm not sure if I'm going to put everything on Burmeister. The thing about it is is that 
it seemed like we were limited in play calling. I'm not quite sure why we were so limited in play calling, but there was definitely something it seemed to be lacking. And I'm, I, like I said, I don't put it all on him because obviously his performance in game one was heads and shoulders above where he was at against Duke. Um, I think also the line was working really well on the run, but there was many opportunities during the passing game where the line wasn't doing exactly the same type of performance. Yeah, I agree. I feel like a lot of the blame – I don't want to use – blame's not the right word to use. It looked like the strategy just didn't make sense. Uh, you know, I know Duke did a lot to scheme to take away a lot of the over-middle stuff. That's tough to overcome when you're a new quarterback as far as in this system and playing with these receivers. I understand but at some point, I feel like you have to go away from just throwing straight 50-50 balls down the field. We're not Gerard Evans playing at Heinz Field in 2016 with two of the best receivers in Hokie football history and Bucky Hodges as your slot guy. It's a little different. You can't just throw fade balls all day and expect to be all that effective. I'm with you. Well, Cordelson, I'm sure, saw while he was watching film what UVA had done to Duke the week before. And Gates was catching every fade ball over top of these corners left and right that he could. But the only problem is our guys couldn't duplicate the same type of performance, and it looked like Braxton was having a hard time putting the ball in the same type of positions that they had gotten the week before. Well, and it helps that Gates is like 6'7". So. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Gates is a really big target. You look uh, from a receiving standpoint, Tavion Robinson continues to do what he does. Maybe he doesn't have a ton of touches, but when he does, he's very productive. Two catches, 85 yards for 42.5-yard average per catch. Burmeister did add – uh, two touchdowns on the ground that carried it 15 times for 54 yards for around a four-yard per average carry. Austin, I'll ask you first, does it concern you that Burmeister is carrying the ball around 15 to 18 times per game? He's not built like Gerard Evans, and we know what a toll it took on Evans at the end of the year. Even though his stats didn't suffer, Gerard is on record as saying he was beat up at the end of the year. Does this concern you with Burmeister going forward? I think it's very different because if you go back to the year, to 2016 with Gerard Evans, one, we didn't have a running back nearly as talented as Khalil Herbert, one. Two, the style of run game that was being called with Evans was very different. While Evans was a very efficient runner, I would liken him more to the battering ram that Quincy Patterson is than the style of plays they're calling with, with Braxton Burmeister. You're seeing a lot more midline ISO stuff where he's able to hit the edge like outside zone, inside zone, and, and work from, from a gap out as opposed to just hammer in the middle like he's a full Basically the Logan Thomas playbook. Yeah, it, essentially with a smaller guy who's a little more fleet of foot, I would say. Uh, it doesn't concern me that he's getting so many carries because I feel like that's how Fuente's offense is designed. The system is built around building off of different RPOs to de design fakes to set up different throwbacks and down-the-field actions, things like that. I'm not upset about it. But I do want to see more of him dropping back to pass because as like, we, we need that side of the offense. To this point, my only real beef with the offense is like the play calling mixed with execution in the passing game. We haven't been able to get the ball down the field as well. There have been a couple of attempt, attempts that have been really close. I know T-Rob could have had another 40 or 50-yard catch that could have been a potential touchdown the way the DB was trailing in the first half that he dropped. But – I know there, there are some things that are kinks that I would say that definitely need to be worked out. Burmeister definitely has some happy feet in the pocket right now. Uh, you see the pocket seem to form, and Burmeister wants to escape as soon as it seems to collapse in any way. And I think that's one reason you're seeing the carries being so high. He's not really getting a lot of design runs, but he's doing a lot of the, I'm not going to get sacked, so I'm going to take second and eight over being first and 14, or second and 14. 100%. You're right about that. And I feel like 
I wonder how much of that dates back to his time at Oregon with a really frail offensive line that was used to blocking for somebody and Justin Herbert, who was getting the ball out in three seconds, the real NFL style quarterback. And Burmeister might have some PTSD, for lack of a better way to say it, from dealing with a really bad offensive line. Josh, I think I'll let you touch on this first. I think if you're going to pinpoint two problems, not not problems, but two things you would definitely want to see improve going forward for the rest of the season. In this game, Trey Turner, three catches, 47 yards. James Mitchell, three catches, 23 yards, although he did have a touchdown. Uh, You know, and 36 of those yards for Trey came on one catch. Those two guys are going to have to be more of a focal point in the passing game for Virginia Tech to get to where they want to be. Now, where they want to be, uh, I mean, I feel like is ACC champion. Now, some people out there may say it doesn't matter what happens. That's not that's not realistic, not going to happen. Nobody's going to dethrone Clemson. But to give themselves the best chance, Trey and James have to have more of a role in the passing game on a weekly basis. How does Virginia Tech do that? Does it start more with the game plan, the scheme, those two guys individually, or does it start with the quarterback? Well, you've got to look at the fact if Herbert continues to run the way he does, the RPO is going to open up, your play action is going to open up, and we've got to be looking at putting James Mitchell opposite of the direction of the run and basically just feeding it to him on those little tight end pops, tight end options. And I think we're going to see that. I think Mitchell's numbers are going to go up. The one I worry about most is Trey just because of the fact we haven't really shown a consistent series of pass formations and – you know, routes that are running right now that are really Trey Turner, you know, style passing routes. I mean, you see Tavion with a lot of the deep ball because, of course, that's what he's doing well. But we're not hitting the 8- to 10-yard pass routes that Trey seems to feed off of. It's interesting to me that Trey is getting so hounded right now as far as with coverages as he is. You know, you definitely see some double coverages that are causing these issues. But we're at some point we're going to have to win some of the matchups. We're going to have to – scheme in some plays. I'm with you. If the RPO is going to be set up as well it is, as it is with Herbert running the ball the way he is and the offensive line executing at that level, there's just no excuse not to scheme something in to get some of our best players with the ball in their hands, and that being James Mitchell and Trey Turner. Well, I mean, you also got to look at the fact, I think what's forgotten a lot of the matter is if you're using your whole week to coach up guys that are second and third on your depth string on, on the defensive side, you're not getting a chance to install a whole lot of the offensive side. So we might just have a mediocre, you know, starting package out there, and we need time to be able to piece together more plays into the system. Yeah, and I think one wild card in this passing game, he, he only had one catch Saturday, but it was it was a bigger play for a first down. Nick Gallo, one catch for eight yards. But I think Gallo can be a threat opposite of James Mitchell at tight end in the, in the passing game. I don't know if it's a Dalton King type role as a receiving tight end, but nonetheless, you know, he could be a very effective weapon going forward for a young quarterback. And, uh, you know, we're all kind of dancing around it. Nobody said it out loud to this point because, you know, there's always controversy. Everybody's favorite player is the backup quarterback. But reasonably, if you look back to last year and how Hooker was able to execute within the system when everything was going well and everything seemed to be functioning properly, you wonder that when he's healthy or cleared or in shape or whatever it is that's keeping him out, because we don't know for sure right now, if he's not – the obvious guy, because I know Fuente said he was the starter before all the, the COVID restrictions got a hold of him and all of that. You wonder how much more fluid this offense can be with Hooker. That's the reason that he was the starter initially. Well, game one, you really didn't have the option. It seemed like Hendon was really – was going to be sidelined. And he came out, warmed up, you know, call it what you want, you know, chess on the field or whatever else to try to get the other team to believe he was going to play but this week, it seemed like maybe we were taking the safe route, knowing we were playing Duke 
And that would make you think that there's a possibility we'll see him against Tar Heels. But you never know because we we don't we're not on that far on the inside. Yeah, and then you take a look at the defensive side of the ball <clears throat> and you'll get Chase Bryce's numbers, 22 of 39 for 271, one touchdown, one interception. Probably his best statistical game of the season. Do you guys attribute more of that to the fact that our secondary, you know, is out, you know, the whole two deep is out? Uh, do you attribute it to maybe us taking Duke lightly or just us not playing well and executing on the defensive side of the ball on the back end? I feel like the obvious choice there is that, you know, our top seven defensive backs were out. Not even like not even just the two deep, like our our two safeties. I mean, we're talking about seven, eight guys that would play very consistently and have played a lot in the past not being available at all. I mean, Keontae Jenkins was the only starter available in the secondary. And then we started Tyler Matheny, who's a walk-on redshirt sophomore. Like his biggest claim to fame to this point in his life is being a two-time state champion in wrestling, not even football. And they were talking about Dorian Strong, a true freshman. He's an 18-year-old kid. Like nobody's ready at 18-year-old. Right? Michael Vick redshirted his freshman year and wasn't ready to play. Right? You know. So how can you expect most anybody to be ready against any D1 functional team? So I mean, when you look at your interior linebackers and see them in the seven or nine position, you know, you you know that something's wrong. And when they're having that bailout and help on pass coverage every single play, it, it opened the game up for running. You, you look at our running, what we allowed on the running game, I think, was inflated by that. And, of course, what, you know, Bryce was able to accomplish against us was inflated by that. But I, I think that overall, I mean, you, you can't be upset with the performance. I mean, the fact is, is that while they gave up 271 yards, you know, they were able to at least keep us in the game and keep from the big plays from happening often enough for us to be able to win. Yeah, I, I thought the guys in the secondary performed admirably. You know, Tyler Matheny has the interception, seven tackles. Uh, certainly we, we need to get our, our regular starters back in there going forward. You you touched on it for a second, Josh, there, the rushing. Duke carried the ball 37 times for 139 yards. You know, 139 is not probably where you want it to be, but it's not a ton. Averaging 3.8 yards per carry. The two rushing touchdowns, you know, do concern you there. And Mateo Durant had a long of 27, Deion Jackson a long of 39, and Chase Bryce a, a long of 22. So you hate to give up three runs there of 20, 20 plus. Uh, but I thought the defensive line and the linebacking core, all things considered with what we were dealing with in the secondary, put on a pretty good performance. It's hard. Yeah, it's definitely hard to fault anybody in the secondary because, like I said, those guys are young. It's, it's good that we were able to come out with a win playing walk-ons in the secondary because – I mean, come on. if I told you at any point this year we were going to be starting a walk-on safety and two f- true freshmen or fr- redshirt freshman corners and then another true freshman safety all at the same time what, and with no depth and their backups are out, and we're all going to start them. They have nobody really to back them up except two true freshmen. You would expect a lot worse than what happened on Saturday. And sure. Chase Price isn't bad, and Cutcliffe is one of the better minds offensively in the league. So, yeah, he, it makes sense that he was able to scheme up and do well. The most impressive thing for me was the execution of the defensive front, like the defensive linemen, knowing all of this and knowing how much pressure that puts on them to perform and make it easier on those guys to take pressure off the coverage. And, you know, there's no other way to say it. They pretty much delivered on anything you could hope for as far as the defensive line up until the end when they started to get tired because depth just wasn't really much of an option. Yeah, and, and, you know, when you look at the defensive stats, I think this is important to note. When you have guys out in bunches like Virginia Tech has had the first two weeks, who is going to lead your defense? Who's going to step up? You look at the top of the stat sheet, Rayshard Ashby, 
10 tackles, one sack, one half tackles for loss. Shamari Connor, eight tackles. Uh, let's see. Gerard Hewitt arguably played the best game of his hockey career. I've heard a lot of people say that the last couple of days. So you're seeing the older guys step up and play at the level that they have to to help, to to kind of lift these younger guys up. They're thrusting roles. They're probably not one ready for and two expected themselves to be in. Yeah, I I mean I feel like we have to get a ton of credit to the defensive line coaches at this point because the only real dif- difference outside of personnel with Justice Reed and uh, Amari Barno has been the two coaches and Bill Tierlink and Daryl Tapp. And, you know, I mean, you look at the way that you think – all right, so I'll take you back. Think back to Bud Foster's defenses when they were living up to the Saxburg mentality. And there were years that they had great defensive ends like Chris Ellis and Coles Colas and some of those guys. Sure. Usually it was some exotic blitz package, like the Ohio State game in 2014. Guys like uh, Ronnie Van Dyke getting sacks and, like, on crazy schemed-up blitzes that confused the crap out of the offensive line. On Saturday, and I know it's Duke, we lined up, and even against NC State the week before, lined up, rushed four, and were able to get six sacks with our defensive linemen. Now, there were times we rushed five, but of the seven sacks, six of those were defensive linemen, and what five of those were defensive ends, and by two for Amari Barno and three for Emmanuel Belmar, who had played probably the best game of his career as a Hokie to this point as far as stats go. Right, and, and Josh, to that point, you know, it, it does speak well for this defensive staff. If I had told you that in game two of the season, before COVID hit, you know, after the belt bowl, everybody's walking off the field. If I told you in game two next season that you're going to look at the stat sheet and you're going to see Tyler Matheny as the third-leading tackler, you're going to see Dorian Strong as the fourth-leading tackler, uh, you know, you're going to ask me, why. you know, one, probably who those guys are, and two, what has happened. And that's not a knock on those guys. It just speaks to the point of the adversity and the character, one, that these guys are showing and the adversity that they're overcoming on a weekly basis to, to get this done and, and to give continue to give themselves a chance to win and hopefully get all the guys back and set themselves up, you know, for a big season. Well, we get the opportunity to get the guys back there. I think this is a great lift for the football team. I mean, you look at a guy like Strong or Jenkins who probably were on the outside when we had Farley still in the lineup or we had Waller or – you know, Hunter was there. We had, op- but these guys have now had the opportunity to get some game seasoning to get ready to go. And these are the type of things that really develop a player. I mean, they're not losing eligibility this year. They're getting game time that they weren't expecting. And like I said, if we can get all this mess fixed up and we can get our starters back on the field, we're going to have lots of options. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. We're sitting here. We had what a combined forty-four players out the first two weeks of the season. So while we have an idea of what our floor could look like, we have no idea what our ceiling could look like because our best corner by far hasn't played and is overcoming a foot injury. We don't know what the deal with that is. Hopefully he's able to get comfortable and able to play in the next couple of weeks, really hopefully this week because we could use him. <clears throat> but outside of that, you know, you haven't seen the full collective, the full strength of what this Hokie roster can be. There have been a lot of depth issues. We haven't even seen our new defensive coordinator on the sideline yet. Right. So, I mean, think about what unprecedented times we're in. We're not waiting to see a player for the first time. We're in game three, and we're waiting to see our defensive coordinator for the first time coach in a game. I mean, that's just – that's 2020 summed up in a nutshell right there. I thought we were just auditioning each one of them to see who was going to do the best <laughs> Hey, job. I'll tell you what, uh, and I saw this tweet uh, from, from somebody 
Ryan Smith and Jack Tyler may have made themselves some future money here the last two weeks. Hats off to Jack Tyler. I thought he caught a great game. Hopefully not too soon. <laughs> As did Ryan Smith the week before. I know this will make Hallfield happy. I saw somebody said that they could see Alabama come calling for Jack Tyler as like a defensive analyst or a linebackers coach uh, in the near future just because he's very highly regarded among the profession. But then, you know, speaking of that depth point, Austin, I think that's a great point. And what's lost in that is that doesn't just, like, devalue the the roster, you know, the depth as a whole. That affects the starter's ability to be productive because now when you're down at Tisdale or an artist, that puts Dax on the field for more plays. He's more worn down. He can't play at a high level. Uh, you know, Justice Reed, those types of guys. So you're not just losing their depth. You're also – hurting your starters because they have to play more plays and expend more energy instead of, you know, having being able to be spelled during the game. Yeah, it was obvious in the fourth quarter that they were just tired. I mean, they were gassed. And who wouldn't be after playing 85 90% of the plays when typically you'd probably rotate and play more like 65 as the starter, maybe 70% of the plays. Like if you added if I told anybody, "Hey, we're going to add 20 minutes to your 2-hour workout." It's going to make a difference. That last 20 minutes, if you're playing on all heart, you're going on all heart because it is very significant as far as energy expanded and things of that nature, especially in a season where we're talking about God knows how many guys have missed a lot of conditioning. There was no spring football. Summer workouts were extremely limited. Half the freaking team was out or restricted on access to the sites as far as workouts and things like that go. I mean, we're, we're talking about guys that haven't had full practices more than – maybe one week t- encompassing the total of preseason and all of that. So prep time goes into it as well. So you're thinking about, I mean, good God, who wouldn't be exhausted after three quarters of play like that with no spell? Right, and Hollifield talks about this all the time, and this is not a Virginia Tech example, but look what the limited practice and ability to be able to hit did to Navy in their opener against BYU. Granted, Navy's not phenomenal overall this year. They just dropped the big game to Air Force by, uh, you know, a wide margin. But they were a totally different team in week one versus week two when, when they beat Tulane. Uh, you know, at least they were able to block and tackle, which I hear is pretty important when you're playing football, especially at the D1 level. You definitely can't afford to play tiddlywinks at this level. Right. So kind of moving on from this game, and we're going to get the next week later on in the podcast. Through two weeks, what – and, Josh, I'll start with you. Who has been the biggest – or who or what has been the biggest surprise of the season so far? The biggest surprise to me is the lack of a short passing game. I think that we've thrown a lot of fades, a lot of long passing routes. But I, I'm really surprised with the success of our running game. We haven't been hitting anything in the short intermediate range to kind of open up off of those type of plays. And the fact that that's not been there has been really surprising because it, that's the type of thing that you expect when you see a successful running game. Yeah, and Austin, I'll throw that to you as well. What or who has been the biggest surprise so far two weeks into the season for Virginia Tech? You know, the biggest surprise for me, and it's not to knock on these guys, I don't think it's necessarily their fault. All we heard about this year really as far as, especially in the transfer portal conversation, was Raheem Blackshear. And, you know, he's gotten his touches, and I know that there's been talk about him not having a lot of time to prep as far as being isolated and, and having to quarantine and stuff like that. He may be a little out of game shape which, again, is not his fault. But I'm shocked at the limited amount of touches he's got, especially in that passing game. I just haven't seen him go out and and get any real burn or attempts to catch the ball. Like All they talked about was him as an all-purpose back. 
And all that's happened is Khalil Herbert has been an incredible all-purpose back. But Raheem Blackshear hasn't caught a pass this year, which is a shocker to me. Talk, because he ran or he ran and caught for a combined 900 yards his last season at Rutgers. I know I think it was like 552 of those yards were receiving yards, and two or three of those touchdowns that he had that year were receiving touchdowns, which is crazy to me. Now he's had 21 touches as a running back, but you know he's only averaged 3.6 yards a carry. He's got one touchdown, so he's they're giving him the ball, and maybe like I said, maybe he's just not quite in game shape yet. But I've been really surprised at how little he's been featured in the offense. Now, I know Herbert's been great, and I'm not complaining. I'm just saying. And then also Trey Turner, he's only caught four balls through two games. Uh, I think he's probably got six or seven targets, but in my head, and I know Fuente's offense is a little different, but in my head, you'd be targeting big play Trey Turner double digits most games. The only thing I can think about with the Blackshear is the fact that being that he wasn't eligible transfer-wise early on is possibly – they didn't work with him a lot in the passing game. Route trees are probably the last thing that they're going to install. And the easiest thing to pick up, of course, is a short running game plan. So maybe we'll see it develop over the time, but it definitely has been really shocking not to see him out there doing stuff. Well, all I can think about and all I can think about in the preseason was like the plays that they ran with guys like Terrius Wheatley, the little pop pass off the quarterback draw that sets up so well. I mean, I know we fumbled it against Wake Forest after like a 60-yard game last year. But the effectiveness of it, we've like Trey. I going back to uh, Trayvon McMillan against ECU. He scored on a seventy-yard touchdown pass off that same play. And all I've heard is about how much better Blackshear is than all of those guys. So in my head, it would make perfect sense. And like you said, maybe it is a route tree thing. Maybe it is a schematic thing. But him on just a seam route out of the backfield seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, I, I think that we all three would agree that Blackshear and Turner's lack of I won't say rolling the offense because I'm sure that that they're trying to target them and that it's there, but their lack of production in the offense to this point has certainly been a surprise. And then for me, and I know this is going to sound like the standard cliche answer, but I'm going to go with Khalil Herbert's production. Uh, and, and even more so than his production, probably his talent level. Because I know we were all really excited about Herbert and, and, and we thought he would certainly be an upgrade from what we've seen from the running back position in Justin Fuente's offense uh, so far, and even an upgrade from what we saw at the end of Coach Beamer's career, you know, with uh, some of those guys. But I saw right before we played NC State, somebody tweeted out that we Hokie Nation better get ready. Khalil Herbert was the next Ron Williams, David Wilson. I was there thinking, you know, that's probably a little hyperbole because those guys are, a dime a do- are not a dime a dozen. Uh, you can't just find those guys anywhere. And what Herbert's been able to do has been incredible. 26 attempts, 312 yards, three touchdowns, 12 yards per carry, uh, you know, well over 150 yards in both games, over 200 this past game against Duke. Herbert's running like a man possessed, and he plays much, runs much bigger than his 5.9205 frame. So I know we've talked about it a little bit, but have you guys been surprised, not just that Herbert's been an upgrade, but just how good he's been? I think the biggest thing that's really surprised me – well, I'm not going to say – because Herbert's numbers are amazing right now, but I think the thing about it is is you have to look at is it the line or is it the back? And I think that's – the two things have come together. We have a very strong line this year, which I think is giving us the opportunity. And we also, on top of that, have now got a back who we can feature. And I think the two things finally coming together after several years of lacking one or the other has really made a difference this year. Yeah, I think it's been a long time since we had a guy that you could say 
you put him in a phone booth, he's going to be hard to touch. And Herbert, as thick as he is at 5'9", over 200 pounds, you know, he's tough to get a hold of. Now, those holes are huge. You drive a Mack truck through them, absolutely. But the thing you really notice with him is not even yards after contact, it's making that first guy miss altogether. They usually, if if I told you as an offensive coordinator or as, or as a running backs coach or an offensive line coach, like, hey, your line is going to block well enough to get your running back one-on-one with, uh, with a guy, any guy on that defense, unless he's an all-world guy, you're going to bet on that running back probably eight or nine times out of ten because those guys are built to have some shimmy like that. That It's their job to make one guy miss. And Herbert has proven that making one guy miss can turn into some huge plays off a of great block. Absolutely. Cool Herbert, you know, has really shown a proclivity for the big play, uh, you know, and has shown the ability to impact the game, at, you know, at a moment's notice in a variety of ways. And that's really something that's going to serve this Virginia Tech offense and overall team well going forward. Speaking of going forward, before we get uh, you know into this week's game and dive deeper into that, we're actually going to take a step back and take a look at this week in Hokie history. And the first game we're going to look at is all the way back in 2011, which now seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, it's the Virginia Tech-Miami game. Virginia Tech ends up winning 38-35. This is the game where Mike Patrick uh, you know, famously says these people are losing their mind when Inter Sandman's playing on the last Miami offensive series of the game. Alston, I'll start with you. What sticks out for you from this game? You know, this one is a game that is on the list of Richter scale, Richter scale games for Lane Stadium around that time when Mike Patrick made his famous call. Uh, you know, Miami called a timeout. It was uh, Logan Thomas had just made a beautiful play on a midline ISO read where it looked like the white sea just kind of parted up as Virginia Tech's offensive line blocked it very well, and he just outran everybody on a fourth-and-one play for a 20-yard touchdown to seal the victory there. But uh, Miami got one more shot of the <clears> – excuse me – at the tie or the win there, and they had called a timeout, and Al Golden's there in his silly little orange tie and rolled up white sleeve shirt. And, you know, the, the crowd just goes nuts. It's one of the first times I remember Inner Sandman being played after the entrance or before the end of the game, like during the actual game, man. And I remember – being there and just being enthralled by all that was going on. Logan Thomas played probably statistically the best game of his career as far as accuracy and, and scoring. I mean, he was 23 or 25, and neither of those incompletion, incompletions were his fault. One was a bad snap that he ended up having to throw away, and another was a David Wilson drop pass in the flats. Uh, gosh, Virginia Tech really probably shouldn't have played this game as close as it was, but for them to have come out with the win – was was big time, you know, and especially with, you know, Miami's kicker being a White Claw long before White Claw was ever a thing, you know. And this game was a really important rebound game for Virginia Tech. They just, uh, you know, come off a loss to Clemson the week before in Lane Stadium, 28-3. to There was a lot of doubt surrounding Logan Thomas's play in that game and his ability to be a quarterback, you know, at a high major Power 5 program. And like you said, he comes out 23-25 for 310 and three touchdowns, no interceptions. A lot of household hokey names here, uh, you know, doing doing uh, big things. You know, Logan has a big game. David Wilson carries the ball 23 times for 128 yards but does not score. Jarrett Boykin, seven catches for 120. Danny Cole, five catches for 91 yards. So a lot of guys that hokey, player, or hokey fans remember fondly. Uh, and then you look on the Miami side of the ball, Josh, Corey Harris probably has certainly his best game against Virginia Tech of his career. One of the best of his entire career, 13 to 21 for 267, three touchdowns, no interceptions, almost matching Logan in a lot of areas there. And then, you know, 
NFL stalwart, uh, you know, currently Lamar Miller, 18 carries, 166 yards. Mike James chips in 10 carries for 65 yards. Looking at the stats, Josh, what really sticks out to you from this game? I think the biggest thing that sticks out is how much wasted talent Miami had that year. I mean, you got Travis Benjamin, you got Alan Hearns, you got Lamar Miller. I think Ja'Cory Harris, you know, will probably go down as one of the quarterbacks that wasted the most talent in Miami, Miami's history. So uh, it was another year where the U was supposed to be back, and it wasn't, and I'm glad that Virginia Tech was able to put them away. Yeah, I, I was at this game. Um, you know, I feel like I can pretty much say that anytime we're talking about uh, this week in Hokie history game. But this is one of the games I remember very fondly. Virginia Tech was up 21-7 at half. Seemed to really have complete control of the game. It was one of those games where you thought it was, you know, a wider margin than the score even indicated. But Miami, to their credit, battled back in the second half. And Virginia Tech, to their credit, found a way to make a few more plays at the end than Miami. Yeah, you know, you can't speak enough about how Virginia Tech kind of rallied in that fourth quarter after – really laying an egg in the third quarter, only putting up three points, at least offensively. I know the defense struggled with the run game, man. Lamar Miller just lit us up that day. And I can just remember thinking like, wow, if they had any amount of time, if we don't run this clock all the way out and score here, they're going to run right down the field and score because if they'd have had time to run the ball, it seemed like they could do whatever they wanted to. That, and I really love that Alonzo Tweedy probably made the biggest play of his entire Hokie career, chasing down Miller, on the last play of a game is kind of a, a backyard, uh, schoolyard, toss it around, hope to God somebody scores a touchdown in the end type of thing. But Tweedy made a good read, had a good angle, and was able to run Miller down and get the win. Yeah, and then, you know, looking at our second game that, that we chose for this week in Hokie history against another, uh, you know, Virginia Tech rival and coastal foe, we look back to 2016, Justin Fuente's first season at, at Virginia Tech, and we certainly hope that we see this same result here in, in, in six short days. Virginia Tech goes into Chapel Hill, beats North Carolina 34-3. to Virginia Tech comes into the game ranked 25th, just cracking the top 25 for the first time that season at 4-1. North Carolina came in at number 17. Uh, you know, not a banner day passing <clears throat> for Gerard Evans, 7-17 seven of 17 for 75 yards, did have two touchdowns. And only he carried the ball 21 times and only had 49 yards, but Trayvon, you know, was was the bell cow on this day, 17 carries for 76 yards and a touchdown. I, I told you Gerard Evans' numbers weren't great. The only person that had a worse day passing was Mitchell Trubisky, 13-33 for 58 yards for a 1.8-yard average, no touchdowns, two interceptions. Austin, uh, you know, I, I think about our very first podcast that we did last year after the six-overtime game against Carolina, and you referenced the weather in this game to start, to start our very first podcast. What sticks out to you from this game? You know, so much dominance all over the place for Virginia Tech, but I know you have some highlights that really stick out. You know, let me start off by saying that this is a little-known fact, and like, well, this is good for our, our listeners to be educated uh, on. Um, hurricanes only affect the uh, the home team when you play in North Carolina at Chapel Hill against that football team. So, like, really bad weather only impacts the play of that quarterback, never the away team. So, it's an unfair advantage. They really ought to get that looked at as far as meteorologists and stuff like that around Chapel Hill. But anyways, I, I actually think this game is, is why uh, Mitch Trubisky was drafted so high by the Bears because, I mean, gosh, 13 for 33, 58 yards, two picks. Looked like a superstar. You know, after all that we heard from UNC that year, I mean, it, it was a good year to uh, 
for us to show up and, and do what we did that day. You know, it wasn't a great statistic day, but the defense showed up and showed out, man. I, I know that Matua Pawaka and Greg Stroman both made great plays. Stroman especially to come up with the turnovers that they forced. They were Everybody was all over Trubisky that day. I know Tremaine Edmonds had a sack. I think Barron and Matua Pawaka split a sack. It was just one of those ugly, nasty, grinded-out wins that turned into a blowout. It, I just remember thinking to myself, like, wow, I, I don't understand why Gerard Evans – is just taking this on the chin and not even thinking about the weather and, and executing this to the best of his ability. You know, 7 or 17 is not a great day, but to throw two touchdowns, to not turn it over, not take too many sacks, to not have a bunch of fumbles, and just how well poised that team was to go into Chapel Hill with a pretty talented team to overcome them and take that win. Yeah, and Josh, looking at the stats, uh, you know, thinking back to this game, what stood out to you and what still stands out to you uh, from this memorable Hokie moment. Well, there's not a lot of directly in the stats that really stands out because, I mean, when you talk about playing through that type of weather, you know, anything can happen. But the biggest thing that stands out to me is the fact that UNC has been on the threshold of being a strong team in the ACC several times. They've had the opportunity to be a dominant program, and they've had the opportunity to be at the, the height of the ACC. And it always seems like Virginia Tech has, has a way of being the team that kind of knocks them off that pedestal pretty quickly. So I think that this is another opportunity. I think – UNC is definitely on the way up, just like they were during this season. Virginia Tech has the opportunity to basically end that type of run. Yeah, and, and I agree. And on that note, you know, now we're going to turn our attention to, to focusing on Virginia Tech's opponent for week three this Saturday, when, you know, in Chapel Hill against uh, the eighth-ranked North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh, um, Josh, I'll, I'll start with you. What early on, you know, in, in our analysis here, what are, what are some keys to the game for Virginia Tech if, if they want to have a similar outcome to what we saw in 2016? I'm going to go opposite of what most people are going to think. And I think the thing that is going to be key for Virginia Tech this week is going to be stopping the run. I think giving the opportunity to give balance to the UNC offense is probably the thing that's going to make it the hardest to stop them. I think when you key in that's on Sam Howe and try to stop just him, I think you find that they've got more weapons than just Sam Howell on this team. Michael Carr is a great running back. I think he's got the ability to gash a lot of teams in the ACC this year. And I think if our defensive front could slow him down and make it force Sam Howell to have to throw the ball, I think we're going to find a lot more success that way. Yeah, and Austin, I'll throw that same question to you. What are some keys for Virginia Tech, uh, you know, to come out on the favorable end of this thing Saturday? And for me, I feel like it's going to center around defense for Virginia Tech more than it is offense. Obviously, you want the run game and all of that to continue to elevate and execute as they have so far, and you want to see the passing game elevate and execute towards that same level. But the big difference that can be made in this game is defensively because everything that I can see in film as far as North Carolina and their offense, they know they haven't been quite as prolific as you might have expected against the two teams they've played so far in Syracuse and Boston College. But their weakness in my eyes is in their straight-up pass blocking. And I think right now Virginia Tech's defense, as far as strength goes, is probably in our edge rushing and execution rushing four. And, you know, it's going to be important, one, for us to get guys in our secondary back because we can't afford to be playing walk-ons and freshmen against some of these prolific receivers. I know Daz Newsom lit everybody up last year, and we had a great secondary full of, of talented and speedy guys that we may be missing on Saturday. We're not sure yet. But we definitely don't want to be taking on Daz Newsom, uh, Newsom and Deami Brown with the likes of 
some of those freshmen and guys. It's just not a fair matchup. You, you can't expect that. Uh, but I would say the, the matchup to watch is definitely our ends versus their tackles. I know Justice Reed and Amari Barno and Emmanuel Belmar have really looked elite at times this year. I think with this one, you know, you're probably going to need another six or seven sack day to really put the screws to UNC and put them on their heels a little bit, not to make a pun there, but to, to take the advantage in the game. Yeah, I, I would agree with both of your assessments. Uh, for me, it's going to continue. It's going to be their ability to continue to dominate up front, you know, with our offensive line. Uh, you look at this UNC front and, uh, you know, at their defensive line spot, especially as defensive tackle specifically, Jalil Taylor, you know, he is 320, but he's 5'11", starting. So he's kind of on the smaller side. And then you look at Tamari Fox, uh, 6'2", but only 280. So our offensive line with their size and strength really – has an opportunity here to be able to clear and move out that that front four of North Carolina. And then for me, again, it's getting our secondary healthy, at least 50, at least the 50%. At this point, I would take 50% of our guys back as opposed to as depleted as our secondary was Saturday. Uh, you know, everybody, Josh, knows about Sam Howell and, and his prospects of playing at the next level and how highly touted he was out of out of high school. Really a big recruit, a recruiting coup for Mac Brown and his staff early on. The numbers are pretty impressive from an accuracy standpoint for the year, 39 of 60, 520 yards, only three touchdowns and three interceptions. But one stat that stands out to me is North Carolina has not executed a passing play of 20 yards or greater through, uh, you know, this point in the season. So what can Virginia Tech do to limit Sam Howell's opportunity for the big play, which was something we could not do last year in the passing game. Howell went 26 of 49 for 348, five touchdowns, Daz Newsome, uh, you know, Hokie fans are certainly familiar with him, the brother of Deion Newsom, son of Myron Newsom, nine catches, 112 yards, two touchdowns. What can Tech do to slow that passing game down into 2020? Well, we couldn't do last year. We have to be, disrupt his timing. We have to break down his pocket. We have to make him have to throw off his back foot. And if we can do that, then it makes it a whole lot easier. You cannot let a talented quarterback sit back there and throw. If he gets three seconds or plus every single play, we're going to have a hard time stopping him. It doesn't matter who we have out there in the secondary. I think if we can get some pressure off the ends and we can get some linebacker stunts and really disrupt his timing, get in his face and knock him off of it, I think that just like any other quarterback, he's going to have a really long day. Right. Uh, certainly. And how I, I think their passing game is the scariest part of, of their team overall. Austin, uh, this is something you and I have talked about off the podcast. Uh, you look at our stats from last year. Trey Turner has a big day, five catches, 106 yards and a touchdown. Everybody remembers this game for Hendon Hooker going out at halftime. Quincy coming in, carrying the ball 21 times for 122 yards and a touchdown. They remember the big throw to Damon Hazelton there in overtime. This is the game where the new overtime rule debuted. Does Hendon Hooker play in this game? That's an impossible question to answer. I don't know that it's even a fair question to ask because we have no idea what his status is because we don't know how much time he's had to practice. Fuente says he's good. Fuente likes to speak in riddles. He's protecting his player, 100% understandable. I have no prediction on who's going to start because there's no real implication given. Maybe a more fair question to ask is, does Virginia Tech need him and Hooker to start? I would prefer, yes, because I think Hooker opens up the offense more just based on what we've seen. I think the ceiling could be very high with Burmeister, but he's just not shown us enough throwing the ball for me to feel super comfortable with the offensive playbook being wide open. And we've seen how much Brad Cornelson struggles when the offensive playbook isn't wide open. 
I throw it back to Ryan Willis, his second, his first full year starting, how bad we looked at times because we couldn't run the full playbook. Nothing was accessible as far as what our RPOs and things like that. So at what point do we decide who's a handicap and who's not? And I'm not saying Burmeister is yet, but it's certainly something that has to be taken into account. Right. So through two games, you know, Carolina has rushed 74 times for 336 yards at four and a half yards per carry. We've spoken about what Howe can do. Austin, if you had to pick one strength for Carolina outside of the passing game, what would what would you say their second strength, you know, is as a team? You know, I honestly – they're, it's their offense in general. Their offense is very prolific. It's very explosive. If I had to pick one player that's not an offensive player to watch out for, it's, it's Chaz Surratt because the kid is going to play on Sundays. He's an elite-level linebacker talent, and he can make a huge, huge difference in a football game. But what I would be most concerned with is not just UNC throwing the ball, but UNC running the ball. Like I said, we really have to have good defensive line play to beat this team and good execution on the offensive side. I think, especially if the weather's the way they're saying it's going to be, rainy and, and kind of chilly, I would say Virginia Tech needs to go, heck, I wouldn't be opposed to starting Quincy and running the ball 100 times against this UNC defense just to see if they could stop us. And I'm glad you went there because that was my next question. Do you feel like Quincy would have a role in this game? If it's cold and it's rainy, I'm I, here's, my, here's my take. And, you know, you can say what you want to. This has just always been my opinion of UNC football. UNC is a basketball school. And beyond, like the second thing that they're known most for outside of basketball and Michael Jordan is fake uh, fake college classes. And then third is probably football. So, uh, so but maybe, you know, up. maybe, maybe golf. I hear their golf team is pretty good too. Uh, they're soft. Mentality is typically soft at UNC. They're not, they're, they're not a hard, physical, nasty football team. They're not somebody that inspires fear. So if it's cold and it's rainy and I'm, Justin Fuente, I say take my 6'4", 240-pound grown man of a quarterback, and I, and I take my 5'9", 209, arguably the best running back in the ACC, not named Etienne, and I run it right at him uh, until somebody stops. I, that would be my t- – but I also grew up running a single wing, so I don't don't take that to the bank. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that assessment. Josh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a different type of question in, your, in the analysis of this game. Knowing – uh, you know, some of the losses on the recruiting trail from Virginia Tech to North Carolina, you know, specifically guys like Eugene Assant. Uh, and I'm going to even throw Cameron Kelly in there, a one-time Hokie commit, the one-time Auburn commit, then transfer. Seems like Cameron Kelly was a one-time everybody commit and then finally settled in Chapel Hill. And then you look at Tony Grimes coming out of Princess Anne and leaving the state and going to Carolina and rolling early and is actually getting some playing time. How important is this game, not just from an ACC championship contender in 2020 standpoint, but how important is this game for a long-term success of the Virginia Tech football program standpoint? Well, I'll be honest. As far as our schedule goes this year, I would definitely put it as the second most important game as far as recruiting goes. I think you have to make the number one most important game for recruiting being UVA because we need to win in-state. And then UNC is basically in our backyard. And if they're bringing in national talent into that school, it's going to be really hard to talk to guys into coming to us if we're not beating them on the football field. And this is not, you know, this is not a talent-laden, five-star laden program yet, but it's getting there quickly. And the only way to break that up is by showing them that there's a better program nearby that they could be going to. 
Yeah, and, you know, uh, 2017, 18, we had the North Carolina to Virginia Tech movement and had some success with that with guys like Dax, Trey. And then all of a sudden, Mac Brown, you know, enter Mac Brown to Chapel Hill, and the tide seems to start shifting their way. But one thing that stuck out to me in breaking down this game was that currently, and, and you spoke to this, that they're becoming a high four, uh, you know, five-star laden talent roster. North Carolina, as is, only has four four-star recruits in their starting lineup. So at the moment, Virginia Tech has more four-star starters than North Carolina. You know, Dami Brown, though, th- this just speaks to that. You know, he leads Carolina receiving with 154 yards, high four-star recruit. How important is that statistic right now that we have more four-stars, Austin, starting than they do? I don't think it means anything at all. Not for this game. I'm somebody who thinks you absolutely have to chase some big names. Some big. If you're going to be competitive on a national level, you have to have the four, the five-star guys. There's no excuse to not go after them, especially when they're in your home state. But when it comes down to it, stars don't play football games. And they're talented. And we're talented when we're both at full strength. It's one of those things. Football is not a game. It's not always determined by skill. A lot of times it's determined by will. And I hate to steal that from the UVA program, the will, will over skill thing. Sometimes it's the guy who – is willing to go that extra mile and plays with more grit, the hard, smart, tough stuff. You know, that, that's where this game is going to be won. It's, it's the team that can come out and and be grittier, be nastier, be willing to do the uglier, dirtier things to win this football game. And not necessarily dirty in the sense of like cheating or doing something illegal, but dirtier in the sense of I'm going to get down in the mud and push you around. D- dirtier in the in the Brock Hoffman sense. Yeah, that, dirty, yeah, dirty in the sense you of know, that I'm a two-star recruit out of high school chip on my shoulder, transfer from Coastal. I'm going to come out and block a wheel in the first game. A guy's going to play on Sundays, be drafted early on, and I'm going to make him look like a little kid. And then I'm going to tag him in a post and let him know that I made him look like a little kid. And there is something to that, and there is something to that mentality, and that is the mid-'90s mentality that Frank Beamer and Bud Foster and those guys built this program on. And there is something to be said for the fact that right now our offense is led by a mean, nasty guy, we control the running game, and we get after the pass rush. And that is what Virginia Tech football is all about for a long time. Absolutely. I, I definitely – even if it is rainy, like, you know, I know I said I want to see us pound it, but I'd like to see some more execution in the passing game. But really where our bread is buttered in these matchups against any good team is going to be in our ability to control the line of scrimmage and to control time of possession, or at least the, the pacing of the game, if not – time of possession, the way, how the game is played and where the game is played. That, that makes the biggest difference, I think, for us. All right, so, you know, we're going to give our prediction here a little bit later when we predict all the games with Josh. Before we get to that, go ahead and tell me the one matchup. It can be one-on-one. It can be unit versus unit. Give me the one matchup that defines this game on Saturday. Special teams. I think special teams is going to absolutely define this game this week. I think that uh, Oscar's going to have to have a great job punting. We're going to need to pin them down, make Sam how go along all the way down the field on several drives. And I think that we're going to have to have a better return game from our punt returners this week because you've got a guy in Ben Kierman down there at UNC who's a solid, decent punter, but not anything special. And I think we're going to have a lot of opportunity to make change of field position all the time in this game. Right, and I really like our special teams unit and think that in a lot of ways they've been pretty solid all year. Sands, the Tavion, you know, Muff punt at Duke, but nobody's perfect. Uh, but, but I really like that. I think that that's an off-the-radar pick that can make a huge difference. Austin, I'll throw the same question to you. 
what's the one matchup that defines the game Saturday? Yeah, I, I said it before and I'll say it again. It's our defensive line against their offensive line, being able to control that line of scrimmage and put pressure on Sam Howell, being able to rush the passer, rush the passer with four and get good pressure and take some ease and pressure off of the secondary in the back end, depending on who we have starting back there. Yeah, I, I would pick that one too. If I'm going to go honorable mention, I'm going to go with our secondary's ability to cover the receivers. And if we're healthy or 75% healthy, I feel confident that we can at least hold our own with them and contain them, you know, Brown and Newsom and Corrales and guys that are big play threats for sure. Oh, right. One other matchup, uh, if Bryce Watts gets in the game, I really hope Trey Turner and he get to go uh, go against each other. Really yeah, and, and not not to speak negatively, but any of our top-end guys matched up on Bryce Watts is a favorable matchup for Virginia Tech just because, you know, he, he's just not that elite corner. The elite. fact of the matter is is that our receivers used to torture him in spring games when he was still on campus in Blacksburg. And none against the kid. He's, he's got some speed, but, you know, he just wasn't great in coverage. And maybe he's improved a lot. I wish the best for him, but I would certainly like to see him matched up against some of our guys this week. And a, co- and a couple of things that stand out um, or stood out to me looking at the depth chart is, you know, Cameron Kelly is not starting his inability to get on the field really, and Tony Grimes not being in the two deep as a five-star corner. So a couple of guys that, you know, went to North Carolina, we'll see how it works out for them, and we certainly wish them well, but we certainly, you know, hope to kick their rear end on Saturday for sure. And, and it is notable to mention Justin Fuente is 4-0 in his career against North Carolina. A minute and has never lost in the state of North Carolina. All right, so Josh, I'm gonna let you uh, take the lead here and, and throw out some games to predict. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can get more right than we get wrong here. So, okay, well, let's start out with a game in the SEC this week. We've got the Tennessee Volunteers led by Jared Garantaro versus the Georgia Bulldogs that actually are still led led by Stetson Bennett with a great performance last week against uh, the Auburn Tigers. And I want to get what y'all guys think about the game. Uh, I'm going to start with that one. Uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Jeremy Pruitt, and I, I really think he, that Tennessee is on the come up there, and I've spoken about that. I guess what have they won, nine or ten games now in a row, I think, or eight, something like that. They won their last six last year, first two this year. Uh, I don't think they have the firepower on either side of the ball. Um, and, and I'm going to go with Georgia here, and I'm going <laughs> to – Go the opposite of Lee Corso and say not as close as the experts think. See, I'm going to actually go the opposite this week. I'm I'm going to surprise everybody. I'm going to pick the Tennessee Volunteers to win this game. I think Georgia came out and played above themselves last week against Auburn. I think that there's a lot of talent on that side of the football. I think their defense is incredible. But I still think that there's opportunities for Tennessee and motivation for Tennessee to do something amazing here. I think – Pruitt, if anybody understands smart, it's got to be Pruitt. So I know what, I know that that's an advantage for him as well. And I'm going to say Tennessee pulls this off 17-14. They're a real nail-biter. Yeah, I, I just don't think that – I think Tennessee's ceiling is not as high as it one day will be just because of Garitano's play at quarterback. He's just not consistent nor talented enough to, to lead that kind of an upset. I uh, – you know, I, I don't really like either of these teams very much at all. <laughs> But I will say this is I think Georgia definitely did overperform against Auburn, and I think Auburn's a little overrated. Uh, I don't think much of Bo Nix personally as far as all the, the fire and, and hype that he gets from professional you know, game casters and all that. But I don't think Tennessee has quite enough to get it done. I'll say that they'll cover the spread. I know they're favored to lose by 14 and a half, and Georgia's supposed to cover 14 and a half. 
I'd, I'll say Tennessee loses in a relatively close one. They lose something like 34 to 24. Well, next game we're going to look at is one that if you would have circled on the first part of the schedule, you would have thought was amazing, but not quite the same hype it has now. And that's Texas versus Oklahoma. Uh, you've got Oklahoma coming off of two straight losses, and you've got Texas coming off of what probably should have been two straight losses. And what are y'all guys thinking about this matchup this week? Well, before I get to that, I probably should ask, do I need to put a score with my Tennessee-Georgia prediction? If you'd like. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere in the neighborhood of Georgia 37, Tennessee 17. Okay. All right, Austin, I'll let you start with this one. Man, this is probably one of the worst games on TV this week just because of the quality of play we've seen thus far. You know, I'm not a, a Texas fan. I'm not an Oklahoma fan. But based on everything I've seen so far from these two teams, I feel like Oklahoma is still the better football team because Texas lost to two bad teams or almost lost to two bad teams, did lose to one. Uh, you know, Iowa State's not great. Kansas State's nothing to, to phone home over. Texas Tech, man, they pushed – God, they pushed Texas so hard. I actually picked Texas Tech to beat Texas, and they choked it away in the end there. But if you're giving up 56 points to Texas Tech, even with the air raid, it's hard for me to believe that you're going to stop Spencer Rattler with all the talent he's got around him. It's not that he's all that great. He certainly has let a lot of people down as far as his performance so far. I'm going to say Oklahoma wins this one pretty easy. Uh, we'll say 31-10 to 10 on this one. I think Oklahoma wins 31-10. Well, I'm going to have to go the opposite again on this one. I'm going to say that Texas gets this. I think Texas's offense is a little bit further developed than Oklahoma's is. And I think that Lincoln Riley is going to experience something that he hasn't had before. That's three straight losses to Oklahoma. And I think Sam Elger gets the job done. And I'm going to say Texas wins at 24 to 21. Yeah, Hallfield, I'm with you on this one. Uh, I, I actually texted my buddy that is an OU fan last Saturday and I, Spencer Radler is bad in crunch time, and that's the number one thing you got to look uh, after talent in a quarterback. There, that there's intangibles, and how do they play when when it's really on the line? I trust Sam Ellinger more in this game. Than I do Spencer Radler, and I'm going to pick this game to finish somewhere in the neighborhood of 52-51 Texas. Well, the next game we're going to look at is one that I don't know if you were to sit there, you could stay awake through, but possibly you could, and that's the Duke Blue Devils versus Syracuse Orangemen. In a battle of Tommy DeVito, who can't seem to stay on his feet, in a battle of Bryce, who can't seem to throw to his own team, who do you think you got winning? Uh, I'll take this one first. Um, you know, I think Bryce played better against us, and I think that some we saw some flashes of what I expected him to be coming out of Clemson, you know, to Duke. We know what Cutcliffe can do as a coach. Syracuse offensively just so limited. That defense is pretty decent. And we saw him hold Carolina down for a little while in the opener. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Duke to get their first win. Uh, you know, in the ACC there, and I'm gonna pick Chase Bryce to get it done somewhere in the neighborhood of 17 to 14. See, I'm gonna go against. It. I think Syracuse is still developing. I think Syracuse by the end of the year is going to be a pretty solid football team. You got Sean Tucker out there. He's a great, a solid running back. Uh, Devito, like I said, if he could have any protection, I'd like to see what he could do as quarterback. I just I don't have a lot of faith in Duke. I think Duke probably has, you know, reached about the pinnacle of what they're going to do this year. So I'm going to take Syracuse, and I'm going to take them actually kind of big. I'm going to take them 31-17 to over Duke. Yeah, I think Syracuse gets this one done coming off an off week. You know, their offense looked a lot better against Georgia Tech. They found some run game. And 
you know, that gives you a little optimism if you can at least run the football. And Duke definitely struggled to stop the run against us. No, the offensive lines aren't necessarily comparable, neither are the running backs. But running the football is running the football, and it definitely looked like Duke struggled to do so, even with their two uh, bookend defensive ends. Uh, I also like Syracuse uh, defensive and we'll call him a star. I mean, if there's even such a thing as a star at Syracuse football anymore, Andre Cisco, if he's healthy to make some big plays and help them get the win, I think it'll be something like 20 to 10. The next game we're going to look at is also in the ACC. That's going to be the Pittsburgh Panthers versus the BC Eagles. What do you all guys think? I, the thing about it is, is that Pittsburgh is basically, you know, coming off of a game which, which they could have absolutely have won. And BC is also coming off a game that they absolutely could have won that really could have changed the course of both these team seasons, I believe. So do you take Pickett or do you take Jerkovic? You know, I think the real winner in the last two games that we've picked is whoever has the channel changer. Because, I mean, these these games are absolute snoozers. Put me to sleep. You know, is it nap time yet? <laughs> Wake me up when it's the 8 o'clock game. Uh, I'm going to go – you know, BC played North Carolina tough. Uh, you know, really outside of that two-point conversion being returned, the game is, you know, with it, within a field goal. Um, I'm going to go – man, this is such a hard pick. I'm going to go with Pitt finding a way to get it done at the end, 21-20. to 20, But, man, I really want to take BC in this game. I'll, I'm taking Pitt as well, but it's going to be a struggle with Kenny Pickett playing quarterback. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, you know, NC State's defense struggled with him a little bit, but a little pressure goes a long way in that. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I think Pitt's defense is just too much for Boston College's offense. If, I, if you're thinking about Boston College having to throw the ball and trying to like, get to a 300-yard threshold to win a football game, I don't feel confident in them doing that, especially not with guys like Paris Ford roaming around the secondary for Pitt. Uh, it's going to be a tight game because neither of these teams are very prolific on offense. I'll say – 17-14 Pitt. And I'm going to say that Pittsburgh ends up winning this game pretty handily. I think Pittsburgh has got – the defense is just going to be way too much for BC. I've seen BC against two teams in the last two weeks that don't have anywhere near the defense that Pittsburgh does, seem to struggle, and I think that Pittsburgh's going to pull this one out. And I'm going to say Pittsburgh wins it 28-7. to And then the next game we have is probably the game of the week for the ACC as far as rankings go. Uh, so we have to give both these teams a great deal of credit for that. And that's Clemson Tigers versus Miami. Who y'all guys think is going to win that? You know, uh, as much as it pains me to say this, because we, you know, we jest about the you being back every year and we, and we, you know, we kind of make fun of Miami in that, in that regard. And Virginia Tech seems to have their number a lot. Um, I'm going to pick Clemson to win this game somewhere in the neighborhood of 38 to 24, but I expect Miami to compete in this game for a long time because I think Miami's strengths match up with Clemson's strengths. I think in the end, Clemson will have just a tad bit more depth than Miami, and they will coach Manny Diaz and that staff. But I do think Miami keeps it close until the mid-third quarter, early fourth quarter. I think it's very disrespectful of Vegas to have Miami as a 16-point underdog, 15-and-a-half-point underdog. Clemson the way they've played thus far this year. I know Clemson is Clemson, and, you know, it's rare to see them really have to wake up for an ACC football game. Seems like they could roll out of bed, kick everybody in the teeth, and go back to sleep before it's really even said and done. Derek King seems like a difference maker, and there's a lot of talent. We all know there's always a lot of talent on the Miami roster. The biggest difference is always made in their coaching execution. 
Seems like this year there's been a step up as far as their coaching staff goes, at least in performance. We'll see if it holds up because truly elite coaching staffs find a way to get it done in games like this. And I know that I count on Brent Venables much more than I – and Dabo Sweeney much more than I would ever count on Manny Diaz. I think Clemson gets it done, but I think it's a lot closer than anybody says it's going to be. I'll take Clemson winning by 10. Uh, we'll say they'll win 38 to 28. And I'm, I'm going to go again against you guys, and I think it's the fact that Dabo Sweeney, big game versus Miami, big game. I think Miami collapses on itself, and I think you're going to see Clemson 52, Miami 13. I think this is going to be probably one of the worst losses Miami's taken, and this being this highly ranked in a long time. And I think the reason why is the fact Miami seems to find a way to always shoot something in the foot. And this is the type of game you cannot shoot yourself in the foot in. Well, two things you scared me, because when you said you were going to go against this, I thought, is he really about to do this? Because I thought you were about to pick Miami and beat Clemson. <laughs> and I was going to end the podcast and take you straight to a medical facility for evaluation. Second of all, I, you know, Brent Venables and, and, and Dabo against – Manny Diaz, Rhett Lashley, you know, strength versus strength. I'll ask you guys before we get to the next game. I know this is, you know, kind of off the cuff. Do you guys think Rhett Lashley has made a big difference for Miami as the offensive coordinator? Not that it's Derek King's made. I think that's that's the, that's the question of it. Miami has not had a quarterback like Derek King in a, quite a while. I mean, you look at – we were talking about Ja'Cory Harris earlier this today, and I was making jokes about Ja'Cory Harris's ability. But Ja'Cory Harris was a good quarterback, and I think, you know – Yes, he had he had weaknesses. So does Eric King. Eric King has weaknesses. They just he hasn't seen a top tier defense show up yet. I, I think this is the week you find out what Eric King really can do. I mean, this is not he's been playing teams that Houston could play against in the last few weeks. This is not a team Houston would play against. No, and, and I think Miami's a lot like us uh, in, in the sense that we there's talent there, but they haven't really been challenged. You know, UAB, Louisville, you know horrid FSU squad, I, I don't think Miami has really played anybody like, obviously, like they're going to see, but anybody of any elite caliber. I think the difference is that Miami has dominated their competition, whereas we have not completely dominated our competition. So we've been tested a little more than they have. Uh, I think the Eric King makes a huge difference. He's I don't think he's a great quarterback. I think he's a great college football player. He definitely executes well with that position, not to take anything away from him. He's not somebody I see taking snaps at the NFL level at any point, but the kid can play football. And he can make the throws that he needs to make in this system. And I think Lashley has made enough of a difference to where they're not beating themselves with poor quarterback play or poor play calling at this point. So it remains to be seen. I don't think they'll beat Clemson. I, I think Clemson is still Clemson. And if you really rattle the big dog's cage, he's going to come out. He's going to come out feisty. But I think it's definitely going to be a, a better test for them than anybody realizes. Well, I mean, we've got two more games to go. And I know that you know the suspense is building in the next game. We have the NC State Wolfpack versus Virginia Cavaliers. I want to start out by telling Virginia Cavalier fans, I will give you a little bit of apology. You guys were able to keep it much closer against Clemson than what you were expecting. But I think that this week it might be a little bit of a different story based on just how well NC State's been playing recently. But what do you guys think? Uh, you know, I'll be the first one to say that UVA played Clemson much tougher than I thought. I, I do find it hilarious. It takes my it takes me back to 2016 when Virginia Tech played in the ACC title game and, and lost by a touchdown. I saw a lot of UVA fans tweeting out and putting on Facebook and social media saying that they didn't want to hear anything about keeping it close and any of that. There were no moral victories. 
But then you fast forward to this year, and it's a 17 or 18 point game. And, you know, they're taking all these positives away, and it just speaks of the hypocrisy of UVA fans, which that seems to be a trend in the world today in general. Uh, NC State, you know, comes and gets a big win against Pitt on the road, a ranked Pitt team. Uh, you know, this may sound like just my UVA hate, but I told you two weeks ago I thought NC State would get UVA, and I'm going to pick NC State to win this game 27-26. to 26. And I'm going to be honest, uh, I am very impressed with what NC State has accomplished since they came to Blacksburg with Leary. I think they're a much better football team. They're getting some guys back. But I think that UVA just is a better football team right now. I think their defense is a little more polished up. I think their defensive front really is close to elite in the ACC. I know they're, I know Snowden and those guys make it difficult to deal with as far as pass rushers and things like that go. So I'm going to take UVA in this one to win. I think it's going to be a low-scoring game comparatively. I, I think it's going to be something like 24 to 20 in UVA's favor. See, I'm going to go the opposite. I, I don't know what the weather is going to be like, so forgive me for that part because if the weather is bad, everything could change. But I think you're going to see Armstrong and Leary light it up. I, for some reason, I really do feel like this is going to be a puncher's type of game back and forth. So I'm going to say NC State takes it 45 to 35. I think you're going to see a lot of throwing the ball up this game. For some reason, it just has that feel. I feel like UVA is going to be swinging because they know two losses in the Coastal this year probably is going to put them in a really tough position already facing everybody else that's above them. So I think this is going to be an interesting game. But I do have NC State winning. So finally, we've come to the game of the week. Virginia Tech versus UNC. Where's everybody got it? Also, I'll let you start. You know, I probably will be the most unpopular pick on the podcast this week for this game. I just – I'm very reluctant to say that Virginia Tech is going to come in and handle anybody that seems to appear at least at full strength. I think it's going to be a tough test to deal with Sam Howell because he is the second, second or third best quarterback in this conference, and he has a lot of firepower at his behest. That being said, I will take Virginia Tech to win 34-28. to 28. Yeah, man, I thought we were getting ready to have to find a third man to do the podcast with. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I, I actually agree with that, um, and I think this is going to be a very tough game on, for either team to win. I don't think we see a repeat of 2016. I hope we see a repeat of 2016. But I think you're going to see more of what we saw in 2018 when Javon Quillen had to – you know, create a turnover there to put us in position for a last uh, game, a last minute game winning drive. I'm going to pick us to find a way to get this done 34 31. And I'm going to go with the, the weather makes this a huge mess. And I'm going to be interested with my pick. I'm going to say Virginia Tech pulls this one off nine to seven. <laughs> I think that oh, Virginia man. Tech will score one rushing touchdown, but miss the extra point, but make a field goal. And we end up winning the game on a field goal nine to seven. Wow, what a prediction. The most important point is the last one. So. That we went, yeah, that's 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 all that we're concerned about. Um, you know, so we're ho we're certainly hoping for a favorable outcome for the Hokies on Saturday to get to three and zero. You know, and, and march forward towards hopefully an appearance in the ACC title game. Uh, you know, survive in advance. That's that's got to be the motto for most teams in twenty twenty, but especially this Virginia Tech team who's been hit hard by COVID the first two weeks. Uh, you know, we're excited to be back with you. We're looking forward to Saturday. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Jonathan Hagee. I'm Joshua Hoffman. And I'm Austin Eads. And you're signing out from the Terror Dome.